This is Web3 Breakdowns. Web3 Breakdowns is a series of conversations exploring innovation in the decentralized internet. Each episode, we will focus on a different topic. We will cover NFT projects, crypto assets, blockchain-based protocols, and businesses being built with Web3 architecture. We will talk to founders, artists, investors, and influencers to understand this emerging ecosystem. Come join us down the rabbit hole. To find more episodes, transcripts, and a library of content to continue your learning, visit joincolossus.com. All opinions expressed by hosts and podcast guests are solely their own opinions. Hosts and podcast guests may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. Today, I am joined by Mike Collier, the Chief Executive Officer of Foundry, one of the largest players in crypto mining, staking, and financing. I thought a fun place to start, just because your background is unique, is just to explain what were you doing before Bitcoin? How did you found Bitcoin? And, and what was it about mining that attracted you? Originally from Rochester, New York, went to school at the University of Buffalo, got an engineering degree, MBA, and then I went to work at GE back in the early 90s. In the last half of my career, I was really a hired gun for private equity to go like fix companies. Honestly, I was between assignments in the summer of 2017, and I started reading about blockchain technology. And it was like, wow, this changes a lot of things. It fixes a lot of problems that can't be fixed with the current tech. Reminded me very much of the start of the internet. So I was college when Mosaic and Netscape came out. and didn't have the guts to move to Silicon Valley. And I always wondered what would have happened had I moved from Buffalo to Silicon Valley and didn't get to do that. And I loved the idea that anybody could participate in these networks. They're truly decentralized. You could be anybody anywhere in the world. And I thought, why not Western New York? And I went all in and I fell in love with the mining aspect of it. I think it'd be helpful just for frame of reference. How does mining work? I think there's a lot of misconceptions about this. When I first heard the word mining, I know I was a bit confused by what it actually does. What does it mean to mine Bitcoin? Essentially, a miner can be a person and the machine. So you have a machine, a computer that's specialized in mining, in this case, SHA-256 algorithm, which is what powers the Bitcoin network. And those miners are basically securing the network. So they have hash power that secures the network. And I think the simplest way is to think about it like processing the transactions on the network. Technically, that happens on the nodes, but the miners create the blocks, they secure it to the last block. And essentially, they get paid for doing that. So you get paid in Bitcoin for doing that work. And it's also part of the monetary policy. So Monetary policy is built into the algorithm, and the way that they issue new Bitcoin is through the miners. So miners get paid in Bitcoin. At some point, they have to pay their expenses, so they have to sell the Bitcoin, and that's one way that Bitcoin gets distributed throughout the network. When you mentioned the SHA-256, my original thought was that these cryptographers, you had to be a math PhD, you were solving this extremely complex problem. I saw from the finance side, I saw the monetary. If I have a miner, I can get some Bitcoin for free by running it on my computer. So that sounded good. 
But then I thought, oh, wow, you have to be like into cryptography to solve this like super complex problem. This is what this compute power is being used for. And so what I came to learn is it feels more like a guessing game, like you're guessing a number. How do you think about the level of complexity versus compute power? I know you don't have to be a genius to do it because I'm, I'm in the business. <laughs> so, And I should have known that it has nothing to do with picks and shovels, but it does require work. It's not free. It requires purchasing a machine. So you got capital outlay, and then you have to pay the electricity to run that machine. And that's not a small amount. The nice part is once you plug it in, hook it up to a pool, the machine does all the work. You don't have to worry about it. And yeah, it's literally, I compare it to like guessing the winning lottery number. That's what the machines are doing. And they're just doing it literally trillions of times a second, trying to guess the winning lottery number. And when essentially 51% of them agree that that's the winning lottery number, the block is secured and the payouts go out to the miners. When you talk about it through a lottery, what is the role of luck in mining? If I hook up a machine, what are my odds of winning the Bitcoin reward, which is you know 6.25 Bitcoin, which is not a trivial amount of money right now? If you go back to the beginning of the network, you used to be able to use your PC to mine Bitcoin. And there's a couple of things that are fascinating and I think are part of the genius of Bitcoin is this idea that the network self-regulates. So as more and more people get into mining, it makes it more difficult to guess the winning lottery number, right? So what that does is it doesn't allow any one person to take over the network because every, I think it's 2016 blocks, about every 14 days, the network readjusts based on how many people are mining. Today, when you think about oil, really, you have a bunch of guys sitting in a conference room someplace in the world deciding how much oil they're going to pump out. OPEC is mad at Russia or US is mad at everybody else, and they're arguing over it. The network, there is no arguing. There's no arguing among the miners. The network automatically resets. If more people join, it's harder. If people turn off their machines, it's easier. That's one aspect. And then the other aspect is, so in the early days, you could mine by yourself. But as it got more difficult, you really had to combine with other miners in this guessing game to win the block. And that's where the pools came in. So you join a pool where you're essentially guessing with a bunch of other people. The pool wins the block and then pays out to the miners based on how many guesses you provided. It's all done through software, but it's like your office lottery pool. You can play the lottery by yourself. Or you can go with all your buddies in your office and everyone pools their money. And if you win, you split the winnings with everybody in the office. That's what the pool software does. And I think another magical part of the Bitcoin network is picking the right number is purely based on luck. So there's no way to game the system, which is really, really powerful. And it's good if you own Bitcoin, it's good to know that it can't be gamed. So it's been fascinating. You know, for me, Started out as a miner and then Foundry, we started mining. We provide equipment financing to miners and then we launched a mining pool. It was all dominated by the Chinese and we really wanted to break up their monopoly around that. This time last year, we were talking about when we were going to add our first customer to the pool. And today we are the biggest mining pool in the world, which is crazy. It's just crazy. Lots to unpack there, I guess. To start, as we move to kind of the business of Foundry, for many people who buy Bitcoin, once they figure out, they read the white paper, they hear about the awards, they say, oh, I want to be a miner. 
And then the second thing they're told is it's the worst business in the world. Don't be a miner. We've all went down that path. I've had people show me old computer boxes that are like, look, I tried it. It's just too hard. When people say mining is a horrible business, where is that narrative coming from? Bitcoin mining goes through cycles. So there are good times to invest and there are bad times to invest. Just like any other commodity type business, boy, there's good times to be pumping oil out of the ground and there's bad times to be doing it. So I think if you invest properly in the cycle, mining is a great business. Typically what happens is people FOMO into mining. Today, mining is a great business if you have machines plugged in today. Problem is you can't get machines for six more months. Well, what are the mining economics going to be like six months from now? And a lot of people will base that investment on the idea, well, Bitcoin's going to go up, so therefore I don't have to worry about it. And then I always respond, well, it's just way easier just to buy Bitcoin. If you're betting on the price of Bitcoin going up to make your mining investment work, just buy Bitcoin. It's way easier. So mining, there's a couple aspects to it because you're right. People tend to buy Bitcoin, then they buy Ethereum, and then they want to become Bitcoin miners. And then next, they're buying NFTs. On the mining front, it's hard to get a machine. Then you have to have a place to plug it in. So it takes a lot of electricity. It's pretty challenging to like mine in your home. So now you have to find a place to go mine. And then the machine can break and you got to pay somebody to take care of it. And there's just a lot that goes into it. It turns into like a real business. But there's something about wanting to participate in defending the network that people love. It's why I do it. Like I love that idea that I'm part of the group of people that help protect the Bitcoin network. DCG, this major conglomerate in the crypto space, wasn't in mining for a long time. And they decided to add mining. It's, it's how you joined. What made that pivot of a decision to get in now? Was it the cycle? They thought right now is a great time to invest and so we want to be a part of it. Was it a mission? We feel like we have to be part of this if we're going to be such a large owner of Bitcoin. Yeah, I guess I'll give you a little behind the curtain. I was working at a company called Core Scientific. I knew the guys that started Core and they're now one of the biggest miners in North America, if not the world. I got a call from Barry Silbert, the founder of DCG. And so I went up, visited with him, and they had tried to buy some machines. And look at the mining space, it's getting better. But if you go back a couple of years, it's the wild, wild west. It's like hard to figure out who to trust, who not to trust. It's hard to navigate. It's hard to buy the equipment. And very basically, it's like, look at the mining space is a complete shit show. And institutional money is coming into Bitcoin. And institutional money is going to come into the mining space. And these institutions are going to need a trusted partner. Barry started buying Bitcoin in what, 2012? Through the entire time period, he never touched the mining space. And he just felt like now was the time to create a company. And he basically gave me a white sheet of paper and said, leverage the DCG brand. It's balance sheet, it's subsidiary companies, it's portfolio companies, and figure out how you can add value and be that institutional partner in the mining space. And that's what we started with. It's been a wild ride. At that point in time, I mean, this was the end of 2019. We're still in crypto winter. The halving was going to arrive in May of 2020. For those that don't know, every four years, there's a Bitcoin halving, which basically cuts the amount of Bitcoin paid to the miners in half. So over time, there becomes less and less Bitcoin available. But if you're a miner, it's brutal. 
you've got at that point in time with crypto winter, the margins were less than 20%, even 10%. And you were staring at the halving, which is going to cut your earnings in half. And so we launched an equipment financing business where we said, hey, let's provide financing for miners because we really wanted to grow the North American ecosystem and really allow it to thrive because it was all happening in China. So the Chinese had built the machines, they had access to the machines. So they were the biggest miners, they had most of the hash rate, they had all the pools. And we really wanted to try to break that up. And of course, China helped us this past year in terms of shutting down mining. (laughs) I'll be honest with you, mining economics were so bad. But Barry's like, look, if you're going to do equipment financing, you better buy machines. And I'm like, all right. He said, how many? He goes, buy as many as you can. And so we, during COVID, when COVID broke out, Bitcoin dropped to like 3,500 or something. We were wiring tens of millions of dollars to China to buy machines. And for the most part, nobody wanted to do equipment financing. They said the economics was too bad. Mining didn't make any sense. So we plugged in our equipment all over North America. It's amazing timing of what happened. When you were laying out the white paper with Barry of how to like attack this industry, was your vision, let's do equipment financing because you guys have never entered mining, this is the best place? Or did you always envision you would do equipment financing and then get to mining? Or was it, we have all these machines and we can't lend them, let's use them ourselves? So in the beginning, we said, look, we don't want to be a miner. We want to support the mining ecosystem. And we felt like the best way to do that was to provide equipment financing for the miners. And it has, I mean, we've deployed, geez, at this point, we've deployed over $400 million into the North American mining ecosystem. And we've helped a lot of miners get their operations set up, get access to machines. And then along the way, it just happened that in the beginning, everyone was scared. Everyone was really scared because we didn't know how it was all going to play out. So we, by default, became a very large miner in North America, but that was not our original intention. But what we decided to do was, where can we add the next value to the ecosystem? And it was to go build a pool. So you need really deep pockets to pull off a large-scale pool. The variation in the blocks that you mine swing. I mean, it's millions of dollars day to day. It's crazy business. So let's move to pools. How does a mining pool work? This is your analogy you referenced earlier of instead of me betting on the lottery myself, me and everyone in the office get together, we buy 50 tickets and we divide it by 150th if we win. That's essentially it. I mean, we take all the hash power from all the miners in our pool. We take all of those guesses basically and submit them. And then if we win the block, we get paid 6.25 Bitcoin plus fees. And then we distribute all of those fees and all of that Bitcoin back to the miners that are in our pool. We're essentially a layer of software that makes that all possible. And we've had to do it. We've done it in such a way where we KYC AML everyone into the pool. We really set it up for institutional size miners and really the publicly traded miners to give them the transparency and the trust that they need at the pool level. Because today, You mine into a Chinese pool, it's like mining into a black box. You don't know if you're really getting paid what you should. So we went through and invested heavily to get our SOC 2. So the auditors love the fact that it can be audited and everything's documented. And and now we have Foundry X, which we help procure machines for folks, which has been a big success. And the other half of our business is really around proof of stake. We stake on 20 plus different protocols, which is just an amazing business. I think... 
2021 was the year of mining. I think 2022 is going to be the year of staking. Before we get to staking, let's just say I'm proof of work. I know I'm missing something, but the part about the pools that confuses me is the point was to have decentralization. So I have a bunch of miners competing against each other. Once you become a pool, I think of you like a team. So you're consolidating the power to the pool. So how can I trust that the pool isn't colluding to hurt the network? So part of it is that it truly is just luck, whether you win a block or not. There is nothing that the pool can do to change that. We have maybe 18% of the hash rate on the Bitcoin network. In the past, there was definitely too much centralization of the pool level. And that's kind of led to the big block, small block wars back in 2017. Bitmain had a couple of big pools. They had a lot of the hash rate. They could throw that weight around and they basically forked Bitcoin. We all know how that ended up. I'm not sure how many people buy Bitcoin Cash anymore. So we were looking at, geez, if you to 51% attack the network, you'd need 2 million S19s, which would cost you about $22 billion. Now, with the way the government's printing money, $22 billion doesn't sound like a lot, but that would be a lot. But the problem is you literally cannot buy that many machines today. So then you would have to try to get existing miners to sell their equipment that equipment represents seven gigawatts worth of energy. So you have to find seven gigawatts of energy and plug these machines in. And it takes years to build these facilities out. So at this point, it's nearly impossible to attack the Bitcoin network. The 51% attack is the idea that if you got 51% of the machines to collude, you could basically restate the chain. You'd have such a high probability of winning, you could break the sanctity of this chain of transactions. And so when we talked about this in the past, I was asking, like, what would it cost? Because I was just trying to think of if I got a bunch of pools together, the pool got so big, could a nation state bribe them and say, hey, let's take all this hash power. You guys are already in a pool and let's do something bad to the network. And your point is, it's not just a money issue. It's a technical and energy solution. I think the second biggest attack on the Bitcoin network happened this summer when China shut down mining. That was a nation level attack on the Bitcoin network. They had 65% of the hash rate. It could have been serious, and it wasn't. People don't even realize it. Even today, like we just set an all-time high. Six months later, we set an all-time high for hash rate, and we just had a nation-level attack on it last June. It would be very challenging for any nation state to try to attack it. And at the end of the day, if you play out that scenario... Look at it, it's decentralized. You only need a few machines someplace in the world to run the network. The difficulty levels would all come back down. It just works. It's like whack-a-mole. It's impossible to shut it down. And look at the monetary. Someone attacked Bitcoin. See what happened. I mean, all you have to do is go back to 2017 and see what happened. Bitcoin forked. There was about three or four weeks where nobody had any idea what was going to happen to Bitcoin. Which chain is going to win? Eventually, Bitcoin Cash became more and more irrelevant over time. Everyone that tried to do that attack lost billions and billions of dollars. There was a lot of speculation when the news came out that China was banning Bitcoin. The headline was China bans Bitcoin. I don't think a lot of people even knew what that meant. How do you ban this thing? But it was really they were banning mining. And there's been lots of speculation about that. As a macro view, I, I thought it would be a strength to own this. This could hurt the US dollar if you own the network, like you have this power position. What is your belief or understanding being inside the system of why China made 
a decision to ban mining. So China's threatened it for years. Every year I've been in Bitcoin, there's been the rumors of China shutting down mining. And by the way, there's still probably 10 to 20% of the network that runs in China, that Chinese miners are just below the radar screen. And it still exists in China, still happening in China. But China is flexing their muscles. They want control and they can't control Bitcoin. So they don't want it as part of their system. They're going to release their own digital currency. We see it in every other industry, right? They kick every company, every tech company they can, they kick out and they recreate their own version of it. And you're kind of stuck with whatever they want. So Bitcoin, I think, is a big threat to them. I think they just finally had enough. My follow-on would be, is it fair that most of the actual equipment and hardware is also manufactured in China? So the biggest manufacturers absolutely are in China. Yeah, that's the last piece. The situation that Foundry found itself in of owning the most equipment in a moment where then people wanted it is a very special spot to be. It would seem to me that that would be the real bottleneck that if you attack the manufacturing of these mining rigs, that that would be an even greater threat. Because telling everyone to leave, to your point, that some people are even still there, the mining hash rate spread around the world and the system is back to record highs. But what if they attack the equipment manufacturers? I think that's still probably one of the weaknesses right now that needs to be addressed is the fact that the machines, the vast Bitcoin mining machines are made in China. Bitmain MicroBT, they've moved most of their manufacturing out of China to Malaysia and Southeast Asia. So they're not actually being made in China anymore, but the expertise is still in China. The chips come from TSMC and from Samsung. But yeah, we need some more manufacturers in the space. We need some manufacturers outside of China in the space. And that's going to be a pretty important focus, I'd say, over the next five years. I think that's going to be the next big change that we're going to see in the network. Barry called it Foundry for a reason. So we have to make something at some point. A little square block now. I really like what they're doing in terms of going down the open source platform around making a mining machine, mining software, firmware. I think that's going to be super important and we're going to do everything we can to support them in that effort. It sounds like when Foundry came into being, there was a belief that we need to make the mining space more institutional, more rule of law. It's still the Wild West. China was considered an enemy in some way to this goal. You're sitting there with this idea to try to like bring mining to North America. And then suddenly the Chinese dropped this decision in your lap that you've been hearing for a while. I'm curious, how did you and the team, re- like, I feel like you had this mission and then all of a sudden this happens. How did you and the team react to that decision? I guess there was like, we were winning. All the North American miners were starting to really crush it. It felt good. It's almost like if your opponent quits and resigns, you know, it's like, well, it doesn't feel as good. But, <laughs> <laughs> we're very close with a lot of Chinese miners and it was devastating for them. Honestly, the feeling was dread for the Chinese miners who have dedicated their lives, dedicated their businesses, and literally overnight, everything was shut down. So we've been working very closely with them, helping them migrate their business to someplace else in the world. And Chinese miners are working night and day to find places to plug in their machines. Does that physically look like a bunch of your colleagues in China packing up computers and trying to get them to the United States and meet you in Texas and say like, this will work. Absolutely. I was in Oklahoma last week with a Chinese miner looking at a property. And yeah, that's wild. It's real. The idea that 
you have this mission. You want to decentralize Bitcoin. Yet, if you think about the other analogy you used with the oil producers, the oil producers aren't trying to help each other. They have a cartel and maybe they kind of agree at the nation level to like, we'll do this and we'll do that. But the goal is to get as much market share as possible. But in a way that's antithesis to your goal that you actually want to spread out the mining. Now you, you could help it, but how do you think of your role as an actor versus distributing? And then when you choose a country, how much decision and how that country is structured to pick where you're going to go and why? So a couple things. One, I find this industry to be very collaborative. The miners tend to work together in terms of sharing best practices. And of course, everybody wants to get their hands on machines first and they want to get them plugged in first and all that. But it's really a great industry to be involved with. Again, we're here for a bigger purpose of securing the Bitcoin network. For us, we're, I think, in a unique position because we're part of DCG. So we're a wholly owned subsidiary of DCG. As DCG benefits as Bitcoin price goes up, I personally believe Bitcoin price can't go up without the security of the network continuing to grow. We need more people mining. We need more machines. We need more hash rate to secure the network, to allow it to bring on the next trillion dollars of stored value. So our goal is really to continue to promote that and make that happen. I mean, we have a lot of flexibility within our business to do it. So we're not a publicly traded miner. We can very basically said, look, at, I don't care what happens month to month, quarter to quarter. I want you to build a business for the next 10 to 20 years. Think in terms of decades which allows us to be a lot more flexible and it allows us to do the right things for Bitcoin at the end of the day. What are the right things for Bitcoin? And part of our thesis is the next biggest miners are going to be the energy companies and nation states. It's playing out way faster than any of us anticipated. So I've been kind of saying that for the last 18 months and I'd say 18 months ago, we would call energy companies. Today, they're calling us. They call us and say, hey, we're interested. We want to learn more. Teach us what this means to have a large base load that's intermittent. And how do I put that into my grid? <laughs> you got countries like El Salvador that are mining with their volcano. If you have a competitive advantage for mining Bitcoin, the countries are going to take advantage of it. They're going to pursue that. Coming from public security side, to this, I guess, would you ever want Foundry or do you ever think Foundry could be a public company? It's interesting to say you're playing a game of luck in some ways. How do you think about that as a public versus private company? I mean, there's what, 15 to 20 publicly traded miners now. That space has just exploded. The miners, they don't want to take on the luck variation. That's why they joined the pool because we guarantee payouts to the miners. So we essentially guarantee their payouts, and then we assume all of the good luck or bad luck on the backside. So we've helped them navigate that piece of it through the pool level software. But I do think it's going to be challenging for the publicly traded miners, for sure, going through the cycles, right? Because not everybody understands how the cycles move and are they going to have the freedom to do the right thing at different points in the cycle. But we'll see. We're kind of in uncharted territory right now. So some of these guys just placed massive orders for equipment. It's, it's mind-boggling. What is the miner's role then? So if I have a simplistic view, I decide tomorrow we're going to create our own mining company. I call you up. You basically can do everything for me. I can borrow. As, if I have money, you're going to give me a loan through the equipment and I'm going to plug it right back into your pool. And then you're going to guarantee me money. 
what is the actual miner doing mechanically every day? If you host your own machines, like if you had your own little facility, somebody's got to watch the machines, make sure that they're running. Sometimes they get dirty and you got to clean them. Sometimes they just fail and you got to reboot them. Like it's basic, low-level technician type work, I would say. It's pretty straightforward. Or you pay somebody else to do all that for you. So you're basically just putting up capital to help secure the network. Do you have a sense of what the ROI is on just, if I just want to deploy capital in that way, is there like a return people make in this space? Or is it so volatile, it's hard to say through the cycle? Over the last six months, 12 months, the return has been less than nine months. The return on your money is less than nine months. That's why everybody's trying to become a miner. That's starting to lengthen now. So it's more like 12, 13 months, 14 months. But in terms of return on invested capital, it's very fast, very, very fast. It's not always like that. So you have to invest the right time in the cycle. But that's why everyone wants to be a miner today. A comment you made that I thought was interesting about Bitcoin mining versus Ethereum mining gets a little bit into the world of maxis of people having the tribal side. But do you mine a little bit of Ethereum as well? We do participate in a lot of other networks. And from a mining perspective, they're much, much smaller than Bitcoin. And we do mine some Ethereum, but our other focus is around proof of stake and really building out those nodes to allow people to stake their coins to on other protocols. Why is it that you only mine a little bit of Ethereum? Why is that number larger? For us, the big money was all in Bitcoin mining in terms of the publicly traded companies. Most of them focus on Bitcoin mining. Most of them wanted to buy Bitcoin mining machines. So that's what we were going to finance. On Ethereum, there's a lot of... I was just reading today, like the hash rate on Ethereum has jumped 30% because more and more ASICs are being introduced. So you used to can only mine Ethereum with GPUs, and then they've introduced ASIC mining now. So if you can get your hands on ASIC machines, we have a few. Um, they're really putting a lot of pressure on the GPU miners. And GPU mining is much more challenging than ASIC mining. You're having that whole dynamic play out in the mining space, but then at some point, Ethereum is supposed to move over to proof of stake. So all the mining will go away. So then it's like, can you get your money back in time before they, they move to proof of stake? On a proof of work part, because we're comparing the two largest ones, are the machines fungible? Or is it this ASIC machine can just do Bitcoin? You can't switch networks and say, okay, let's start mining Ethereum now. Even if we wanted to, you need dedicated hardware and software for it. With an ASIC, they're dedicated. They're dedicated to a particular algorithm. So Bitcoin mines SHA-256. Now with SHA-256, you can mine Bitcoin, Bitcoin Cash, Bitcoin SV, and there's some other stuff, right? You can mine any of those coins. Others like, there's other ASICs for like Equihash, which you can do Zcash or Zen or some others. With GPUs, GPUs, you can actually mine many different tokens with a GPU. So they're versatile, but they tend to be smaller tokens. They tend to be altcoins that don't have as big a market cap. So it's, it's a little more gambling on that end. And so then on proof of stake, how many chains are you currently working with? How does a chain get Foundry to say, yes, come and mine our chain? Well, we stake it, right? We don't mine it. How do they convince you to move capital over to stake it? So on the staking side, we stake on about 20 plus protocols today. So all the big ones... Part of what we do is we provide staking services for DCG. We provide staking services for Genesis, which is another sister company of DCG. 
And then we provide staking services for institutional investors. So some of it's just based on demand. Somebody's got a big position in Solana or Near or something. We'll run the nodes for that particular network. In some cases, the networks are reaching out to us because we are a friendly node operator. We want to see those projects be successful so we can help set up a lot of nodes to defend the network, to get their networks off the ground, and we can be um, good actors in the space. We're not trying to go attack different networks. I probably should have done this before. Can you help explain the difference between a proof-of-work chain and a proof-of-stake? Proof-of-work, you're basically consuming electricity to power the machines to make the guess on the winning lottery number. In the proof-of-stake side, you run a node in the cloud, typically. So we'll do it in the cloud. We do it on bare metal in our own data center and or we have our own private cloud. But you run a node and then people that buy the token can take that token and they can stake it on your node by locking up their tokens on your node. That's what provides the security because if your node isn't running, you can get slashed. So you can lose your tokens. They make a payment to the folks holding those tokens to stake them there. So you get a yield. You basically get a yield for holding your coins on the nodes. And then many people set up nodes, and then those nodes are working together to process the transactions and secure the network. In proof of work, the reward's based on the random number. And yes, in proof of stake, how do you decide which node wins? Or is that the wrong framework? It's a tough question to answer because it depends on the network. Everyone network has their own white paper. They have their own monetary policy, how they want their network set up, who can run a node, what it takes to run a node, and then how their actual chain works. It's brand new. Proof of stake has been around since basically in the last three years, three, four years. It's a different way of tackling different problems. It's very different than Bitcoin. I get the question a lot, oh, is Bitcoin going to move to proof of stake? And it's like, no, Bitcoin will never move to proof of stake. It doesn't even make any sense. So it's almost like, probably not a great analogy, but I think of it as like the browser wars of the late 90s. The Internet Explorer, which search engine was going to win? When I was in college, it was like Ask Jeeves and Alta Vista and Yahoo was like the dominant and, and there were tons of them. And you didn't know which one was going to be the winner. And at the end of the day, Google shows up and ate everyone's lunch. I think of that the same way in these other layer one staking protocols is there's a lot of competition. There's pluses and minuses with each one. And we're not going to know who the winner is for years. And that winner may not even exist today. But that's not true with Bitcoin. Bitcoin is different, special. With Ethereum as the example, moving to staking and Ethereum 2.0, one thing I find interesting is how people feel about miners and Bitcoin. When you describe yourself, I get the sense of like, there's a sense of pride, like I'm protecting the network, I'm doing this good. And Ethereum always feels like, you know, there's gas wars, like the miners, this idea of how to like maximize how much money you take off the chain. It's like an adversarial position between miners and the users. And there's this belief of like, well, this is a temporary problem. Seem very challenging to try to attract you and your capital. Like, oh, do you want to become a miner over here? By the way, we're doing our best to try to move away from you. What's your view on how do they actually even attract miners at all? And then when do you believe you'll see Ethereum move to proof of stake? <laughs> um, I laugh because I think back to when I first joined the industry, it was, oh, Ethereum is going to move to proof of stake at the end of the year. That was four years ago. They're definitely closer now than they were four years ago, but 
look, it's anyone's guess when it's going to happen. Running proof-of-stake nodes for Ethereum at scale is challenging. It is really hard. To me, it feels like we're still a ways away before that transition happens. It's going to be like a massive experiment to see how they pull this off. What, in your opinion, is the most challenging part of running them as someone who is running one? Oh, the custody, managing the keys. As a staking provider, you've got like one set of the keys and the custody provider has the other set and just key management is challenging. It's not hard to do it one node. It's hard to do it when you have thousands of nodes. The theorem is amazing. It's really led the way in many regards, but there's a lot of other protocols now that are coming up that are pretty interesting and we'll see how they attract development talent and who's building on them and where it goes next. One of the things I had an idea about, and this probably was a lack of knowledge about mining until I got to meet you, was is there ever a world where individuals all are miners on a network? Why can't everyone's iPhone mine? And I think the iPhone is probably the worst thing to do because it's a centralized control. But is it possible that the technology gets where everyone could kind of contribute to a proof of work decentralized network through some simple compute power? Or is it just going to be a race for bigger computers, more electricity forever? It started out that way. That was the beauty of Bitcoin mining was anyone with a computer could participate in the network. I wish I was paying more attention back then. But, <laughs> um, I do think about that a little bit in terms of, man, these big publicly traded companies are going to big, powerful miners. And how does the network get decentralized again? I think that there might be some technological breakthroughs that would allow that to happen, but it's pretty tough to compete at the larger scale. Where it seems like we're on this path where it will only get tougher. You talked earlier about the energy companies and the nation states. Do you see a world where this becomes a national interest? Like I think about the grid, railroads, airlines, where countries actually kind of step in and influence their network. And what does that do to the ethos of the decentralization of a nation state really became a big part of the Bitcoin mining network? How would that make you feel? I definitely think we're headed down that path where the energy companies are recognizing the benefits of having a large base load that's intermittent on the grid. And as we try to build out more and more renewable energy, you actually need these base loads that are truly intermittent. And intermittent, what I mean is you can literally turn off a Bitcoin miner and the network doesn't care. It has no impact on the network. So that you can turn these machines on and off. It's not like a regular data center that you never want to go down. These things can be turned on and off in a moment's notice. I think it's going to become a critical part of our electrical grid, actually. And it will probably become a critical part of the electrical grid in every country. But what's cool about it is even if that happens, you can still buy a miner and mine a home. You can still participate in the network. No matter how big the nation state is, no matter how big the energy company is, you can still participate yourself. The profitability of one machine is relative to the profitability of a thousand machines. If a thousand machines can run profitably, one can. I feel that the positive economic value of doing it beyond the hobbyist of saying, I want to try, I mean, like that person who just won a single node Bitcoin reward. And I wondered how much money did that person spend on electricity for all this time? How long have they been running? Was the payback still positive? I mean, it's like your neighbor winning the lottery. You're like, well, that's, that's not fair. <laughs> yeah, so it's, nice, it's nice to think I could plug in a computer, 
but I do wonder if the energy companies, if it's just larger and larger sources start to control the network. Is the decentralization ever going to go back in the box where it really will be lots of individuals? Or is it just on this one-way track towards more controlled large groups of capital are the ones that will control the network? And in that case, it really does become a nation-state question and largest pools of capital. When I see what Block is working on, Block is, they want to open source this. They want to figure out a way to continue to decentralize the network and allow anyone to participate in mining. So I actually think it can happen both ways. It is possible for nation states energy companies to have large deployments and allow any individual miner to participate in the network. And ideally, you could do it from your home. That would be the ideal situation. But you got to have cheap power. Like at the end of the day, you have to, the cheapest power wins. That's why I'm kind of betting on the energy companies because they got the cheapest power. What countries do you think are moving? Are the ones that you're most excited to work with that are pushing this in the most innovative ways? The United States of America. Absolutely. Canada is a great spot. The Nordic regions, we do work in Iceland and Sweden and Norway. They're great places to mine. I'm super excited about how we can get smaller nations engaged in this. So we're starting to look at that. I love the fact that El Salvador is leading the way and showing people that, hey, this is possible. Like you don't need to be a giant. You can still participate in the network. So I think it's going to open up a lot of opportunity for countries that have some access to low-cost power. Those are the countries that are going to win. If you don't have access to low-cost power, you're probably not going to do Bitcoin mining. What do you think about the energy? This always comes up. There's two parts of it. One, it's people are upset that there's so much energy consumption is used for security. It seems like a one-way direction. And then the second part of that is I see people promoting that they have a green version of this, but it doesn't seem to make sense to me. And I'm curious if that's marketing shtick or if there's actually anything there. It's just pure marketing. It doesn't mean anything. I mean, Bitcoin's fungible, so it's there's no such thing as a green Bitcoin. On the energy front, my core belief here is the Bitcoin algorithm is written in such a way that the miners are incentivized to find the lowest cost energy. Nobody has to tell them to go do that. They've been doing that since day one. And the lowest cost energy is renewable energy. Lowest cost renewable energy is hydropower today. That's why miners gravitate towards hydropower because it's on all the time and it's really, really cheap. So miners are going any place where there's an abundance of renewable energy that they can get for cheap. And I actually believe that this is going to play out very different than how everybody thinks it's going to play out. So you've got the environmental groups that are pushing for this future of just pure renewable energy. And the battery technology doesn't exist today to actually allow that to happen. Between now and whenever that's available, you need the energy companies that are building out all these renewable power. They need some sort of base load that's intermittent to help them get faster paybacks on their projects. And the energy companies are starting to recognize that. So they're starting, they're running experiments now where they're mixing Bitcoin mining with their brand new wind farm or a new solar project. And mining can migrate. So as they build those projects, they can start mining immediately. Over time, they'll build the transmission back to the main grid. And then that mining will move to the next renewable energy site. And then on the flip side, Between now and then, 
whether people like to admit it or not, you have to have a base load of energy on the grid to survive because sometimes the wind doesn't blow and the sun doesn't shine. These power plants right now, where they're building lots of renewable energy, the gas-fired power plants are getting crushed and it's hard for them to compete. So providing a base load for them to make money to stay open so that when the wind doesn't blow, they can produce power is super important. I don't understand that the environmental lobbyists, it's like they don't want to acknowledge that aspect of it. They just want to ignore it. I just hope our politicians have their eyes open and spend time to learn how the grid actually functions. Otherwise, we're going to end up like California with rolling blackouts. You're an engineer by training, largest miner in the world. Are you spending time with politicians doing this or are there parts of Foundry or GCG trying to explain what you just explained? So a couple of things. One, we're not the largest miner in the world. We're the largest mining pool. There's lots of people want to lay claim to be the largest miner and that's not us. We've invested, we have now a full-time public policy person who is spending his day every day talking to politicians. It's a lot of education. Like it's a lot of helping them understand what Bitcoin is, what Bitcoin mining is, why it's important. We're spending a lot of time in New York with that right now. We're working a lot with energy companies to help them answer their questions and help them set up their experiments and see how see how it works. This has been really fun. I wanted to end with just two questions. So crypto moves really fast being built so quickly. I'm curious what you're excited to see built over the next six months. And then I used to say 10 years, but now I think I'm going to keep shortening that to maybe three to six years. So what are you most excited to see developed or built in your space in the short term and then the intermediate term? I think 2022 is going to be all about proof of stake. So I think more people are going to engage in that part of the industry. And I think we're just going to see massive growth on the proof of stake side. I think that's going to be super interesting because it's going to allow for all these different layer ones to really compete with each other. And then if you look out three years, five years, I think it's going to be really cool when we have a layer one proof of stake chain that I call them real businesses, like traditional businesses are starting to engage with and build on. That's when this thing just takes off. So whether it's gaming or healthcare, transportation, or whatever the industry, it's going to be super exciting as people get to monetize their own time. I love the fact that Facebook changed their name to Meta. They want to build this virtual world. It's perfect because it's going to onboard a whole bunch of people into this new world. And then they're going to wake up and realize that Facebook actually built AOL and nobody wants to use AOL. And they're going to realize that there's places like Decentraland and all these other virtual worlds where you can actually monetize your own time and you don't give all your money to Facebook or to Meta. And I think that's just going to be wild to see that play out over the next few years. I agree. Is there anything that we didn't touch on that you wanted to say? The biggest thing is we've got an amazing team at Foundry. We have a lot of fun and we're growing like crazy. We just hit 85 employees and we plan to double in 2022. So look, if you're interested in getting into this space, go to our website, foundrydigital.com and apply. Don't be afraid. A lot of these jobs are new jobs. We're teaching lots of people how this industry works. Love to see more people um, apply and we'll get into the space. Excellent. Thank you again, Mike. I really appreciate it. 
Yeah, Eric, it was great. Thanks for the time. To find more episodes of Breakdowns or to sign up for our weekly summary, check out joincolossus.com. That's J-O-I-N-C-O-L-O-S-S-U-S dot com. 